Hi, this is Paul. Uh, people have been sending me this video like crazy. Now, I watched it on my Daily Wire account, and generally speaking, I think it's the same all the way through. You don't have the interstitial ads when you watch it on Daily Wire, which is nice, and then you get the end part. And a number of the recent conversations, um, Roy Sabag and um, Louise Perry, some of the real gold in those was on the Daily Wire part. Uh, I thought a lot of the gold, or at least the real interesting stuff for me, was on the YouTube portion of this one. I only have about an hour right now to work on this. Now, this week is kind of impacted because next week I'm going to be on vacation. So, don't know what's coming through the channel. Might be a bunch of sermons and... and um, reruns and randos conversations i've tr been trying to sort of accumulate them so the channel doesn't go completely quiet while i'm away on vacation but uh this again jordan's been having a lot of jordan's been on top of his game and this this was a very very interesting conversation and and constantine from trigonometry is already an interesting guy so Let's, let's pick it up at about 34 minutes where Jordan runs through. This is one of, Jordan's got a bunch of sort of standard things that he works on. And this is one of them. This has been, this has been sort of part, he's, he's had this as part of his project for a long time. And these are the sort of the basic elements of life. It's really in some way sort of a wisdom routine. Look, you don't know what to do. So why don't we just look and see what other people do that, that seems to work. And maybe you don't have to do any of these things or all of these things, but if you don't know where to start, here's a good place to start. And this is also something conservatives can offer. So, so this is kind of a, a, wisdom, a wisdom path. It's like, well, here's the basic template for, for a reasonably tolerable life. We'll begin with that low bar. So there's seven or eight major domains. So you don't know what to do with your life. Well, let's break your life down. Probably want an intimate partner. Most people do. Now, you might not, but probably you do, even if you think you don't. And so you might be one of those exceptions, but don't assume that to begin with, because that's an uncomfortable place to be if it's true. Now, now it's interesting because a little bit, for, a little bit earlier on there, Constantine had made the comment that uh, we want to keep this voluntary. And... That's true. A little bit later on, when they get into more political waters, they talk about, you know, keeping things voluntary. And I think I was thinking about that as they were going through it. And I think that's one of the one of, one of the great values of the West that usually gets translated into sort of freedom. OK, and if you people make terrible slaves uh, because they're, they're just way too powerful, they're way too smart. And uh, their weight, when they're unhappy, they tend to be really problematic and they take all that power and potential and can really do a lot of damage. So people make terrible slaves. And so to, to one degree or another, if you give people a choice, they usually do better. That, of course, as um, our knowledge, I don't know if that's even true. I have this bad habit of not finishing my sentences. We are, at, we are, fairly aware of the fact that our desires and our choices are themselves formed. So part of what we go on here with, 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 with Jordan is, okay, 
Constantine was like, well, people, people want to make up their own mind, so we're not going to tell people what to do. And that reminds me of something that Rod had said in the second or third marriage crisis video about, and I, I wish I could sort of put it back into words, and I know after Rod hears this, he'll probably say it. Basically, we got to a point where there's no longer sort of an ought coming from above. And for Peterson, he wants it very voluntary, but there is still, when he talks about, when you talk about responsibility, responsibility is almost from above because, of course, responsibility, even if you just look at the word response, it's a response to something. And so I, I think as a culture, we don't really have our act together in terms of figuring out this dance of, of the voluntary and the um, and responsibility. Well, obviously, voluntarily, voluntarily shouldering responsibility is in many ways sort of an optimal grip. Now, maybe you're a radically creative genius like Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci or Picasso, and you're so idiosyncratic that you can't bind yourself to any one person. But, you know, they were one in a billion, and probably you're not. Now, maybe you are, but that's, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Probably you want a family some sort, parents, you want to have a relationship with them, siblings, children, most people have children. Now, now again, there's something a little sneaky in here because we're in the midst of a culture where there are, just recently on Twitter, there was some woman who was like, you know, don't don't deal with men until you're like 40s or 50s. It's like, well, then you're, you're not going to have a family. And again, that's been a, been a big part of our marriage crisis conversation and that's one of the main points that peterson is dealing with with his agenda for his um uh 2023 reformation day event that's the best relationship you're ever going to have if you're fortunate enough to engage in it and so you probably need a vision for that of some sort friends helpful to have some friends you could develop a vision for that you need a job or a career because otherwise you die and pe think people think you're useless they shun you and then you die. That's a bad outcome, unless that's what you're after. You should regulate your behavior in relationship to temptations like drug and alcohol abuse and sex because short-term... So again, this is the list that Peterson, he's, he's pulled this list out before and he's to the point now that he's got it memorized. Pulse of hedonic gratification doesn't play out well across time and it tends to make you unpopular. So that's not a good... Uh, that's not a good recipe for long-term progress. Into the In fact, I wouldn't be surprised to have Peterson take this list and put it out into a book, something you know similar to, let's say, 12 Rules for Life. In the future, you should think hard about doing something on the civic front. You should take care of yourself mentally and physically. You should have a plan for that. You need an educational plan because there's probably something you could learn and get better at, and that doesn't have to be academic. It could be extremely practical or creative. And you should figure out how to make productive, generous use of the time you have when you're not working. And so that's like a conservative vision. So, so there's his list, and, and I think it's a good list. Right, because it, it fleshes out the generic landscape of human striving. And it's a good place to start if you don't know where to start. You could start with one of those things and move towards it, or two or four, and maybe you don't have to do all of them. But my experience as a clinician has been that if you are failing on all eight of those fronts, you're not depressed, you just have a terrible life, right? So conservatives can say, traditionalists can say, here's the basic template. 
Now, I don't think that the conservative comment is nested within the overall conversation. I, I think what he just said now that as a clinician, and I think this is true as a pastor, I think it's a really good list he's got. And if you don't have those elements, if you're really lacking or struggling in one of those elements, in time, there's going to be some big prices to pay at some point. Here's the responsibility you can find in meaning. Well, now you got to cobble together something idiosyncratic and unique to yourself. That's, that's the making the, the archetype manifest in the confines of your own life. But that's the basic, that's the basic way forward. And you know, we've, we've found if people, if students do an exercise like that, a writing exercise and answer all eight of those questions, they're, the probability that they'll drop out of university in the first year, about 40% of kids do, roughly speaking, in the first year or two, the probability that they'll drop out is decreased 50%. So just, just thinking through, just developing a vision on those fronts is highly motivating and it keeps anxiety at bay and it unites people psychologically and it helps them identify with the pathway forward. It's not optional. So, and that's an ant ant antidote to the death of God in some real way too, right? That, that journey towards an integrated single point of meaning. We should talk about the... Okay, now it's going to get quite interesting. Now, notice that he's, he's connecting... Yeah, let's just let him keep going. The religious front a bit, because we started talking about it mm. with the woke religion. You know, you just defined, described yourself as not religious. And so, but you're concerned about false religions, right? Is, is that a reasonable way of thinking about it? Yeah, I, th I, I th well, I'm concerned about bad religions and bad religions take many forms. To me, this seems like a bad one. Uh, and religion- okay, does, does that- Sorry, go for it. Does that imply that there's a good religion? I, I think does there are- Now they're, they're really struggling because the word religion, of course, in the secular frame is, is deeply conflicted. Apply that? Yeah, well, for me, it does in the sense that there are forms of religion that are beneficial to society uh, and to the individuals who participate in them, in my opinion, uh, even though I myself cannot force myself to believe something I don't believe, right? Um, but this religion, uh, I mean, it has all the worst elements of other religions. And on top of that, it doesn't do what most other religions do, which is offer a route, an actual route for redemption an actual route for atonement. Because even if you participate in- Now it's interesting because he's just threw out redemption and atonement and okay, what do you mean by those words? Wokeness fully and you say, I am a, well, I'm not, but I am a straight white man and I am guilty and the sins of the world rest upon my shoulders. What can you do? You can never purify yourself <laughs> because you can't be transracial because that's whatever that is, right? That's the worst form of racism. What can you do? You can't atone no matter how many times you kneel to BLM or whatever else it is that you do. You're never going to be clean or purified. It is a religion that says you, Jordan Peterson, is a straight white man, are guilty forever, and all you can do is apologize for the rest of eternity. And that's it. That seems to me like quite right. a bad religion. Now, that is a really nice little set that shows why I think for a lot, for many of us saw pretty early on, this wokeism isn't really going to, going to 
inherit the earth because while there are forms of Christianity in the West, I'm not going to talk about um, Orthodox Christianity because in many ways I don't know enough about it, but there are I've seen I've seen Roman Catholics and Calvinists that that sort of live in that space. And as he said, there's no there's basically no point to it. It that that space pretty much sort of becomes a religious version of depression. It becomes pathological. Okay, okay. So let, let's play this out. Let, and you can help me with this. And you can take the atheistic stance and hammer away at me, okay? And I'll, I'll push back. I'm not an atheist, by the way, but go for it. it. Oh, okay. Okay, well, okay. Let's start by characterizing. You said you're not religious. You're not an atheist, but you're not religious. So, so maybe you could clarify that first. I'm agnostic. I have no idea what's going on. Okay, okay, okay. Fine, fine, fine. So now, even that position of agnosticism, he clearly believes he knows enough of what's going on to make the statements that he has about woke religion, religion not in fact having a redemptive aspect. There is no, now when he says atonement, even that, he's using the word correctly, he's using both of those terms correctly, but he says, I'm not sure about what it, what exactly, so atonement is about being reunited with the source, let's say, or being, um, atonement would be, uh, being becoming clean, achieving the transformation into what I was always meant to be. We can use that kind of language. You can all use kind of language. So he's not anywhere near as agnostic as he says he is because he's, he's actually, again, as seen in that little statement that he made, he's got a lot of those ideas right there. So it's agnosticism. All right. So we're, we're playing with the proposition that there are clearly pathological forms of belief or and, and at a deep level, pathological forms of religion. Okay, so, so we'll start with that premise. And then the counter premise is that there is something that's the opposite of that. And you started to flesh that out in one dimension, which is that if it's a, a genuine religion, in quotes, then one of the things it offers is an actual pathway to atonement which means that you have some means of dealing with your sinful inadequacy that doesn't crush you. Okay, so let me tell you something that Carl Jung said about the Catholics. This is very cool. Uh, he said he really regarded the Catholic confession as a form of, uh, what would you say, God, God's mercy manifested in the world, symbolically speaking. And here's why. Okay, you're going to do stupid and cruel and unworthy things even as you define them. So you're gonna be guilty before yourself. Forget about what other people think. You might also- Tim Keller uses this old pastor illustration. It's not original Tim Keller where, imagine you're hanging around your neck a, well, that's an old illustration. Imagine your cell phone, don't even have to imagine it. Imagine your cell phone is recording everything you say. And on judgment day, the only standard that you'll be held to is the standard that you've used against others. It's basically a rearticulation of what Jesus says about judgment. Do not judge because the measure that you use with others will be measured against you. So imagine that your Google phone or even your, your precious Apple phone is recording absolutely everything you're saying. It's recording all of the judgments that you're using to condemn others. And on judgment day, God just pulls up the record and says, okay, these are your standards. You fail. Um, now face the consequence also be guilty on that front, but you're definitely being guilty in relationship to your own conscience. And then you have to deal with the fact that you're not who you should be. 
And that can crush you. Certainly that crushes people who are depressed. Uh, it crushes people who are anxious and it definitely crushes people who have post-traumatic stress disorder because they often develop PTSD because they watch themselves do something terrible. So, all right, so now there's an existential problem is you gotta stumble forward with your inadequacy. Now, if you're Catholic, you can go to the church and you can say once a week or however often you want to, here's a bunch of ways I'm really stupid and they've hurt me and I'm trying to detail them out completely. And in principle, I'm trying to rectify those faults, right? First by their admission and second by the determination not to propel them forward. Now, now in all fairness, the Catholics sort of are known for their nice package with respect to this, where you have the confessional. And let's let's um, also acknowledge that Protestants and Orthodox also have the same practices. They're usually packaged in a little different way, but confession is pretty much part of the standard part of the Christian package. And then the priest says, okay, as far as God's concerned, <laughs> that's good enough. And you have to go do these rituals of atonement and you're, the slate's wiped clean for the week. And, and of course, I, I just got the uh, Jewish members of my Consciousness Congress, hey, what about the Day of Atonement? Yep, 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 you got the Day of Atonement. It, it's, they're right that this is, a, this is part of a, a pretty standard religious package. And you're going to go out and be a fool again, but you get to start again. And so you're proposing that one of the hallmarks of a genuinely healthy religion assuming such a thing exists, a fundamental set of beliefs, is that there has to be a pathway forward to the rectification of inadequacy and flaw. Is that, is that fair enough? That is a positive aspect of religion that I, I can see, yes. We'll be back in... Ah, interstitial. This is why... I, uh, okay, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Okay. Um, what's interesting is that he identifies as not religious, but this is a positive aspect of religion. So for him, perhaps other people need this and it's there. And later on when they talk about this, he has this wonderful little quip where he quotes someone says, the wealthy think religion is helpful, usually for keeping keeping the, um, the poor think religion is necessary and the middle class, um, yeah, the middle class think they, um, anyway. Very interesting. He's probably a wealthy man now. He's certainly successful. So religion is helpful, but apparently he doesn't have the same need for this confession and atonement that others have. Okay, so now you said earlier that you do not want to be compelled to believe things you don't believe, hmm. right? If I, I've got that right as I well. I can't and, make myself well, believe things I don't believe. Yeah. Yes. And we've talked about this before. Uh, beliefs, beliefs sort of well up from inside. They are not voluntary. That's a good thing because if you stood in the road and said, I don't believe there's a truck barreling down the road to hit me, uh, that would be a real problem. So our, our beliefs arise unbidden and we find it, we might find it annoying if others are trying to, even though this is completely normal in our world, others are trying to impose their beliefs upon us of one sort or another. Yes, so that's like that suspension of belief, right? 
So, so I think this is a place where both agnostics and atheists do, where things stick in their throat in relationship to something like the classic Judeo-Christian traditional belief set. And that's parodied by the proposition that people who have that faith believe in. Now, maybe I should have started the video earlier when Constantine was basically saying, well, people don't, people like to have options. Yeah, that's true. People like to have options, but it's also true that we understand that there's certainly an element and an aspect to the universe that um, impinges upon us and is against our will. And in many respects, that's sort of a definition of reality. You know, a bearded man in the sky, let's say, and that that's so preposterous that no one sensible can believe it. And then if faith requires the sacrifice of reason to that degree, then, well, then we'll sacrifice faith instead of reason something like that. And there's an enlightenment claim lurking at the bottom of that. Does, does that seem reasonable, yes. all of that? Okay, so let me, let me... Jordan Peterson's uh, religious um, uh, um, examination, Constantine in the dock. Set before you a set of counter propositions and you tell me what you think. Mm. So I've been working on this idea in my new book. Um, it's called, We Who Wrestle With God. And I've been basing this work on the proposition that there has to be a unifying, animating spirit. And so unifying means it would unify you psychologically, so it would bring the diverse elements of you together, so you weren't a house divided unto yourself, and it would also unify other people. And it has to unify the individual and other people simultaneously because well, you fall into disunion psychologically and then you're anxious and hopeless. And if you fall into disunion socially, then you fight. So now, what he just laid out there is enormously true. And he said it so often that people just sort of, I don't think people, I don't th think what he says there really impacts people, but it's a critical element of his argument. And he's right. So the alternative to a unifying vision is psychological disintegration and social chaos, right? It's unity versus multiplicity. That's another way of thinking about it now. And, and what's important is a little later, and I don't know if I'm going to get there because I'm watching the clock ticking. Constantine basically says, well, I don't know if, you know, I, I'm an individual and I listen to my intuition and that's enough. What Peterson just said right there in terms of a unifying thing within us, because What's interesting and what Peterson says about intuition here is almost exactly analogous to what C.S. Lewis will say about instinct. The problem with instinct is not that it isn't there, it's that there are so many of them. And the problems with intuition is not that it isn't there, but that our intuitions go in so many different directions. And and deep in this, and, and I, I really like how Jordan deals with this in this video, because he talks about the diamond and Socrates, and I, I think he's I think he's right there. But this the the, the real problem is not only the self-integration that we need to be, in a sense, to be um, a whole self, to have integrity, to have all of our parts brought together, you know, when you say someone is well put together, that's really what we mean, but also to be part of a larger framework, part of a family, part of a community, part of a marriage, all of those things require that other 
integration with others into extended bodies. You can have a tyrannical unity, and that's not good. That's a tyrant, literally. So what might a non-tyrannical unity be like? Okay, so let me just tell you a couple of brief stories and, and very, very quickly. So I think the biblical corpus is a metonomic literary work. It, it takes one story after another and juxtaposes them and somewhat, in a somewhat non sequitur fashion making the case that there's something in each story that's emerging that's the same. And I would say that's the, that's the monotheistic animating spirit. So it, the Bible is a series of meditations on the nature of the monotheistic animating spirit. And, so and now again, this is why Peterson is trying to, this is after my, the video that I made about vocal distance and and Aaron McIntyre and Benjamin Boyce this now Peterson this is he's laying the foundation and again it's very interesting in this video because he's he's increasingly he's increasingly conscious and aware and talking about the Protestant Catholic interplay you can see that he's working through these issues now and again I think one of the things that people have difficulty understanding is, again, there's two sort of two kinds of Protestants. There's big P Protestants who are sort of self-conscious protesting something in the, in, in the Catholic Church. That protest goes on, and there's small P Protestant, which is sort of like church in the wild. And, you know, part of the goal here is the end of the protest. So the next question would be, well, what is that spirit? And I would say, well, that's what those stories are trying to portray. So here's some examples, and you can tell me about, tell me what you think of this. So in the story of Noah, the animating spirit, so that's Yahweh, is the voice that calls the wise to prepare when the storms are approaching. And then belief is whether you abide by that voice or reject it. It's belief. Now again, he runs through these just like that, that little wisdom cluster as becoming sort of a part of his standard. This sort of going through the patriarchs has become sort of a standard element of his talks lately. In both cases, because you either accept it and act it out or you reject it and act that out. There's no no faith decision. Both of those are a faith decision. Okay, so that's Noah. And then in the story of the Tower of Babel, which is the next story, the animating spirit, Yahweh, is portrayed as the spirit that totalitarians compete with when they build their towers to the heavens, and the spirit that makes everyone speak a different language if that totalitarian enterprise goes too far. Now, it's really important to recognize is that, again, part of the reason narrative is such a powerful compression engine is because it can bring so much of the far too complex world down into manageable size. And what he's doing there is basically a biblical interpretive move because he's taking this narrative and he takes an aspect of it and, you know, makes it itself abstract that can then scale across time. So it's important that you notice that move. So you have the narrative, which has within it more information 
then we can really sort of set out in laws and rules and other abstractions. So you take it and you pull out an abstraction and that's the one that goes. And that's basically a preacher move. That's why everybody ends up speaking a different language like we do now. We can't even agree on what constitutes a woman. And so God is, Yahweh has presented as something necessarily transcendent and that if human beings build something technological to replace that, then the consequences will be, well, that the structure will be devastated and people will no longer be able to communicate. Okay, and then in the Abraham story, Abraham is privileged. You could say he's got white privilege, even though he was Middle Eastern. And he has rich parents and he can just sit in his tent and eat peeled grapes and do nothing and be an overgrown infant and, and he'll be secure and and well-fed, sheltered, all of that. So the basic problems of his life are solved insofar as material security can offer that. But then a voice appears to him that says, you have to leave your comfort, everything, your family, your tent, your, your tribe, your nation. You have to go out in the world and make your way. And then Abraham does that. And of course he's father of nations, and, but he does that and he has just a dreadful time of it, right? It's tyranny and starvation and the, the Egyptian aristocrats conspire to steal his wife. And, you know, he goes right into the bloody mess of life. And Yahweh is put forward as the voice that calls him to adventure. And then I'll give you one more example. So in the story of Moses, the Exodus story, Yahweh is presented as the spirit that opposes tyranny and opposes slavery and leads the enslaved out into the desert, right, where they're lost, and guides them when they're lost towards a more positive vision. And so it's an animating spirit. See, again, there's, there's that interpretive move. Because animating spirits animate you. They, they propel you in toward, towards movement. And you're always possessed by an animating spirit. There's, there's no way around that. It's one spirit or another. And the monotheistic claim is that all those animating spirits need to be integrated into a superordinate spirit and that that spirit has to be characterized and then celebrated. And so, okay, so that's my counter proposition to the atheist. Now that last point, characterized and celebrated is really important because it's exactly where Constantine's going to sort of stop because then the question is, well, what if I don't agree with the characterizations and what does celebrating it get me? And, and that's, that's a very direct, reductive, but common and not unreasonable question. And it's sort of at that last moment because Peterson, you know, he whatever he's, I mean, he, he always answers the religious question with a fair amount of, um, it's none of your business, very much a modernist move, but one, one might, one might consider it more common for me, a minister to say, it should be, you should, you should in fact pay attention and worship and that worship should be a part of your daily life. And that should be a part of this list that Peterson had in terms of this is what a good human life is made up of. A good human life is made up of attending to 
the animating spirit that created the world and moves it moves the narrative of this world towards its climactic um, proper conclusion, let's say. It's in the agnostics is that I think that's all just true. That's now, I don't exactly know what, yeah, so, well, so, so tell me what you think about that, you, you know. Well, it's, because it's the last step I have a problem with because the animating spirit, uh, why that has to be unified and codified as God is, is the part of it that I don't get. Remember what I said earlier about the integration? Because, I mean, part of the easiest way to sort of look at the wokeism and say, it's, it's, that's not going to get you what you want it to, is because it cannot integrate. Because the feminists are fighting with the transgenders. In fact, the transgenders are fighting with everyone or some transgender. A lot of the transgender allies are fighting with everyone because the thing can't cohere. And so that that ability to unify is is critical is critical for human beings otherwise when human beings are not united we just tend to kill each other um okay for me those things could be intuition uh, i for example have a very powerful intuition there have been many times in my life when i've done things that were actually counterintuitive but something has made me aware that what i must do now is x right um, okay. Now that, and, and Peterson's going to jump on that because, and there are many, many times I talk to Christians and they'll talk about, I was moved by the Holy Spirit. Another friend of mine always has the little voice. He said, well, the little voice said to me, and in many ways for him, that little voice is the Holy Spirit and it's God. And it, it is by no means illegitimate to draw those connections. But part of what happens in the Christian church, because it's communally held together, that if you're alone, that intuition can tend to be easily divinized. And so now you have running around all these little divinizing things. So what happens in the church is that some people say, well, the Holy Spirit told me this. And another person will say, the Holy Spirit didn't tell me that. So then suddenly you have the tension and the dynamic where everybody as a body, as a distributed body, as a community of people, as a collection of people, suddenly they have to enter into negotiation. And that's exactly where Peterson's going to go with this in a minute. Um, because, okay, so you've got your intuition. Well, there you go. At the same time, people have a real objection to someone standing up and saying, thus says the Lord. Well, your intuitionism and your thus says the Lordism, they're not far apart. Okay, so, 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 so let's go with that something. Fair enough. So I would say that what you're, what you're characterizing there, that intuition... The hypothesis in the biblical corpus is that intuition is a manifestation of an underlying unifying spirit. Now, I understand right? that. Now, you might... But, but, well, so but you why might is say, that well, it's necessary? Your, well, that, that, that is exactly the question. And that's, um, and that's where I, faith comes in. That's the because when Constantine listens to his intuition... He is acting like his intuition is, in fact, a unifying spirit. Remember what I said about C.S. Lewis and instinct. Because if Constantine would listen long enough to his intuition, he would realize that other intuitive voices are also emerging. And the fact that he's it's integrated means that he, that he acts. And once he acts, well, suddenly 
there has to be into it there has to be integration because you've acted and so now you're going to have another intuitive insight or moment about whatever comes next as the result of your acting the point of yeah. faith right uh, and yeah. that's the yeah. step that i can't make myself make because i don't believe that that is what it is okay well i think there's two elements of faith there one is if you let your intuition guide you that's already a step of faith because you've decided that you're going to go in the direction of your intuition rather than it's well, a faith in what something else yes. is doing it yes well, it's, it's willing to put yourself on the line for something. Yes. Right, and so that faith isn't exactly, here's what I believe to be a set of facts. That faith is more, here's the risks I- Here's what I believe to be a set of facts. That then is sort of propositional, okay? And that's a big piece of this. Well, I, I'm not assent into, in, in religion you have, I believe these things. Okay, fair enough. And in the book of James, uh, basically James retorts, says, even the devils believe in God. The, the devils have all of their propositions in better alignment. What really matters is what you do. It, it doesn't matter all the things that you say you believe. I believe I should exercise more and eat better. Good for you. It does you absolutely nothing if you don't actually exercise more and eat better. If, in fact, um, your ideas about exercise and your ideas of eating are themselves, in some ways, propositionally correct. In other words, you don't get rid of the propositional, but merely the propositional alone doesn't get you what, say, modernity thought it could. I'm willing to take, according to this set of principles, faith is more, here's the risks I'm willing to take according to this set of principles. In other words, faith is not belief without evidence. And that was, you know, the new atheist thing. Belief is belief, faith is belief without evidence. No, faith is acting on the knowledge and information and acting on the world as I see it right now. Uh, for me, it's more of an experiential thing, as in, I've listened to this intuition before. Now, now for me, that's... That, that, that's, that's been the move that's been popular for the last 40, 50 years. And it has given me good advice before. And every time I listen to it, it gives me good advice that turns out to be true. Okay. Now you've got an issue here because, okay, first of all, that's just you. And what religion really is, is an entire community listening to intuition, but also to um, a, a storage of knowledge that has been worked through over centuries by a particular community. So you have intuition plus inherited knowledge and assessment of it by a whole community. And part of the difficulty that Constantine's going to have is, well, everybody, everybody lives and dies by their intuition, but you're a lot better off using that informed thing. Another thing that comes to mind right now is Harari's um, I think it was his the second book of his that I read that basically was saying that, you know, before we had intuition and now we're going to have Google. And it, his, his point is that intuition alone and, and all of us, the funny thing is all of us know this of something, you know, the person around the corner says, this is what you should do. Well, according to what? According to their intuition. Okay, you got a sample of one. Well, you say, well, I should talk to more people and I'll probably have more wisdom. Yeah. And I should talk to older people. People have had experience. Yeah. 
And what about people who are dead? What about sort of the hierarchy of dead people that we've listened to? And that's exactly why people, you know, listen to authorities, uh, depending on what realm of authority, if it's a religious tradition, people within that religious tradition, or if it's no in, in no religious tradition. I mean, maybe you're sort of interested in Stoicism, and so you might want to listen to um, Seneca or Marcus Aurelius or, or some Stoic. Or if you're a Christian, you're going to listen to Augustine in the West, or you're going to listen to, let's say, Maximus in the East. Um, so in other words, what you do is your intuition is fine, but you expand it along many lines. And in fact, religion is the living within a body where you take all of that and you put it together. You say, well, I, I don't necessarily want to just receive it. Okay, but at least you're going to listen to it. At least you're going to pay attention to it. What you finally decide to do and hopefully all of that will inform that intuition. See, what's what's amazing about this is that what emerges here is some sort of secret sacred self again where um, it's, it's this diamond. Well, okay, fine. But it's amazing how quickly we throw out psychology is only applicable to others. Me, I follow my intuition. Oh, so that has nothing to do with your upbringing. A little bit later, you listen to him and he says, well, it's kind of what I saw in my parents. Oh, okay. So you've taken the sample size at one and expanded it to your parents. And then sometimes you talk to your friend, you've expanded it to your friend. You don't think that all of that experience is now poured back into your intuition and that is what's coming up? So what happens in religious formation is that, in fact, you take let's say Darwinian sourced wisdom in the Bible, but you know, wisdom that has stood the test of time. Now let's, let's give Brett Weinstein his due say, well, you know, context change and all that has to be sifted. Absolutely. Which is why you talk to people who are alive today, who seem to know more than you do. You talk to scientists, you talk to psychologists, you talk to religious traditions, you take all of this and hopefully all of this is going to cultivate and form within your intuition so that your intuition improves. Where are we at right now? 52. Is this a good place to stop? Um, Jungian self-God within, Christ the Logos. Yeah, there's so much more to get into. Um, anyway, there, there, there's, a, there's, a lot more, there's a lot more to get into, but I am out of time right now. Um, so that's that's just the way it goes with my schedule. And I know there's going to be a lot of comments about the beard. Trimming the beard is always a risk, you know? And but but what happens is the hair grows and the beard just gets longer and then it, you know, I start bumping into it and I get food in it and I get and it's like, uh, so then I trim it and it's like, well, now it's not even. So got it. So then finally after uh, after I have a uh, after I trim it a little bit, I was like, ah, shucks, just it's easy to get it uniform. So there it is. It's according to my daughter's. And people are always saying merch, merch, but it's according to my daughter's uh, little little graphic that she made of me. Because uh, those of you who've been watching for a long time know, don't get all that attached to the facial hair because it comes and goes, my friend. It comes and goes. So then don't worry, the beard will grow again. It always does. What I like about shaving it off is now I'm not going to have to, uh, I'm not going to have to deal with it for another three or four months. So, and then maybe I'll do better. I, I was on a pretty good roll in terms of trimming it and not, 
you know, after I trim it, then I look in a mirror and it's kind of sideways or, you know, this time I hit, um, it's on this side, you know, I kind of hit a, hit a patch and it's like, ooh, now I'm going to have this big bald spot. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, I went to coffee break this morning and the coffee break ladies are like, oh, it's so much better. That beard makes you look so old. Now, of course, all of these ladies are 20 or 30 years older than I am. But anyway, so yeah, the beard, got it. Leave your comments below. Again, generally speaking, men like the long beard, women don't like the long beard. Say la vie. So I'm gonna I'm gonna end this now because I gotta get home and do a bunch of stuff. But um yeah, I hopefully will will pick up this pick this up again tomorrow. The whole conversation was really good.